The heart of the good news of Christianity is this. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And the two key words there are sins and scriptures. Unless you can see the cross in the light of those two things, you haven't understood why Jesus died. He died to deal with what's called sin. We've got to relate his good life to our bad life, and we've got to relate that death to our bad life, and see somehow that the cross does something very real about the evil in our world and in our hearts. And if we're going to understand how his death connects up with sins, we shall only do it by reading the scriptures. The Bible is the clue to it all. It's as if God planned the cross and then gave us a book to tell us all about it. You get a car and there'll be a maker's handbook with it to tell you all about it. And God did that with the cross. He didn't leave us to puzzle out why Jesus died. He gave us the scriptures to tell us why. And so from the scriptures I'm going to draw the meanings, and I put an S at the end of the word, of the cross. I see in scripture five meanings of the cross. Number one, in relation to the devil, the cross was a conquest. A conquest. It was a victory over Satan. Where did evil come from? Question we're often asked. It didn't come from God. It didn't originally come from us. Sin isn't that original. It came from the angels. That's where it started. And the evil in our world is due to the evil that took place first outside our world and came into our world through persuasion, temptation. That's the insight the Bible gives us. And therefore, we human beings, in a sense, are in the grip of evil powers greater than ourselves. And those are intelligent evil powers. And if you dabble with them, you'll find that out very quickly. Don't dabble. But this is our situation. There are only wars here because there's been war somewhere else. There's only suffering here because there's been disobedience somewhere else. And that's the insight the Bible gives us. This world is in the grip of Satan. Therefore, it's a dirty world, it's a diseased world, it's a dark world, and it's a dying world. All because it's in the grip of Satan. And when Jesus set his face to go to the cross, he said, now I'm going to deal with Satan. I'm going to challenge Satan to do his very worst, and I'm going to beat him and cast him out. That's how he saw the cross, as the final confrontation between Satan and himself. They had had preliminary bouts all through Jesus' ministry, but now came the showdown, and Jesus went to his death, believing that that death would rob Satan of his power. When Jesus died, the war between good and evil has been decided. For this world, there's still a lot of mopping up. There are still some pretty stiff battles, but Satan has had his sting drawn, his power reduced. He is already a defeated foe, and he knows it. And if you claim the cross of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, you will discover that Satan cannot stand against you. For the cross was a conquest. You can work this out in practice. You can prove it to yourself next week when you are tempted next time. Say, Satan, I call your bluff at the cross. You've been defeated and you have no power over me because I name the name of Jesus and I claim the power of his blood. You try that and see what happens. So that makes it pretty relevant. The cross in relation to Satan is a conquest, a decisive battle which has been fought and won. Mind you, I guess Satan thought he'd won when Jesus died. I'm sure Satan thought he'd had the last word.
But three days later, Jesus came back from the dead. And Satan couldn't even tempt him after that. Satan couldn't even speak to him after that. He had nothing whatever to do with Satan anymore, had Jesus after his resurrection. Now the second thing, in relation to the world, the cross is a reconciliation. What does the word mean? It means to bring two estranged, alienated parties together again. It's a word that's most frequently used today in Marriage Guidance Bureau, to reconcile husband and wife. Those who've got at loggerheads, those who've fallen out with each other, those who have separated over a great gulf, to reconcile them is to bring them together. Now that implies, of course, that there has been an alienation, that there has been a separation, that there has been a falling away from each other, and we've got to face that fact. First of all, on man's side, there is a definite antagonism towards God. It's strange this, you know, you don't realize it until you face people with Jesus and the cross, but there is in every human heart a positive antagonism toward God. They may go to church. They may say they believe in God, but when God's word challenges them at the moral level, there's an antagonism to his word. As soon as God gets too close, there's a barrier goes up. There is in our nature a rebellious attitude to God. We don't like him. That is why the Jews are unpopular, because they represent God among the nations. They are the people of God. They will never be popular for that reason. People don't like God, and therefore they don't like his people. That's why in this present conflict, nation after nation is coming to one side, but Israel's left alone. You see, they're the people of God, and they're different people. They remind us of things we don't want to be reminded of. And there is this basic antagonism to God and the things of God deep in our nature. But when the cross comes into the picture, do you know that antagonism melts? The cross removes the antagonism. I've seen that, you've seen that. Tell the story of the cross to someone and you'll see the antagonism melt. You'll see the enmity go. But was there an antagonism in God towards us that the cross reconciled? No. No, God loves us. God has never been an enemy of us. He's never hated us. But there's a different antagonism in God which doesn't quite correspond to our antagonism to him. Man's antagonism is to God, but God's antagonism is to sin. And that's a different thing. He loves sinners, but he hates sin. And it is his antagonism to sin, which we call the wrath of God, his righteous anger, that we've messed up a world that was good when it left his hand, that we've spoiled it with sin. He's angry about that. He's antagonistic towards it, but he's not antagonistic towards sinners, or he'd have... He'd have destroyed us all long ago, but he has said this, I'm going to destroy this world. I'm determined to have a good world. And if you hang on to your sin, you'll go down with it. It's not because I hate you. I don't desire the death of the wicked, but I'm determined to get a good world. It's as if a property has been condemned because it is filthy and diseased and because it's inadequate from every point of view, hygiene, ventilation, the rest, and they're going to pull it down, but someone's determined to go on living in it who's offered a decent house, and they're told, look, we've got to pull this down. You stay there, it'll come down with you and on you. And God has said this, his antagonism is not towards us, but it is towards sin. And the interesting thing is that the Bible clearly teaches that not only does the cross take away the antagonism in man towards God, it takes away the antagonism in God towards sin. 
For when Jesus was about to die, he said, Father, take this cup away from me if you can. Do you know that the word cup is used metaphorically 20 times in the Bible? And out of those 20 times, 17 times, it refers to the cup of God's wrath. So there can be no doubt what cup he did not want to drink. Father, take this cup of your wrath. Let me tell you, it's as if Jesus drew into his own body on the tree all the wrath of God against the sin of the world and he drank it to its dregs. So the cross removes the antagonism in man towards God and it can take away the antagonism of God towards your sin. And you can be reconciled to God. You'll never find that outside the cross. I move to number three. Relation to the Lord, the cross is an offering. Do you know when Jesus died? He died precisely at 3 p.m. on the 15th month of the month on the 15th day of the month Nisan, probably in the year AD 29. Not sure of the year, but we know the day and we know the time. What's so important about that? Just this, that at three o'clock on the 15th of Nisan, in the month of Nisan, on no other month, on no other day, was this true? On that day at three o'clock in the afternoon, thousands of knives slit the throats of thousands of lambs and they died. The Passover lamb was being sacrificed at that very minute as an offering to God. Now this kind of language means little to us now because we're not used to sacrifice in worship. You've got to go to certain primitive societies on the earth to see this happening. We're not used to it now. How would you feel if you had to bring a, a little animal in the door tonight and I took a knife and slit it as your priest and put it on the table till this table was dripping in blood? How would you like it? Again, you'd wondered what you got into, but that was the religion that God told the Jews was right. And for centuries, they slaughtered innocent lambs. Why? To make atonement. To atone for something means to make amends for it or to pay compensation for it. To atone for something is to do something that makes up for what has been done. And to offer a lamb for atonement means to make amends to God. And the idea behind it was to offer to God a pure, unblemished life to make up for the sinful life that God had had from the worshiper. It's as simple as that. And it's a sound and basic idea to God. It was God who taught them to do it. He said, you must make amends for your life and your life you've messed up with sin. It's blemished in my sight. I can't accept it. So you get a lamb and it mustn't have a single spot of blemish on it and you give it to me. Kill it. Give it to me. And I'll accept that as atonement for the life you've lived. They did that all through history. But you know, the day Jesus died, no more lambs were needed ever again. Do you know what his cousin John said about Jesus the first time they met? He said, look, that's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sin of the whole world, an offering and a sacrifice. You'll find the language of sacrifice right through the New Testament. We still use it. We still sing about the blood of the Lamb and glad to. The only reason you didn't bring a sacrifice tonight was that one has been made that covers everything, that atones for every life here, that makes amends for everything you've ever done, that pays compensation for the life that God should have had from you and never did. And it's a life that had to be completely offered. You couldn't just offer God a lamb and then take it back to the farm and fatten it for your table. No, it had to be killed and offered. 
totally given to God and the only way to give your life totally is to die. And when Jesus died, it was an offering for your sin. Now the fourth meaning of the cross is in relation to the law. There are laws, there are laws of society, right and wrong. There are also laws in heaven which apply to all of us. God has laws, God tells us how to live, God tells us what is right and wrong. And God has the problem that every one of us has. What do you do with somebody who does wrong? It's a real problem. You've got it in your domestic life, to spank or not to spank, that is the question. You've got it in social life, what do you do with criminals? Do you send them to a lovely open camp in the country with television in every cell, hoping that they might respond and, and become better people? Or do you lock them up and put them on bread and water? What do you do? The real dilemma all the time is this, do you punish or do you pardon? Do you show justice or do you show mercy? Do you let them have it or let them off? And it's a real dilemma and the problem is that human beings can't do both at the same time. And every time you have to deal with a wrongdoer, whether it's your own child or a criminal or what have you, every time you've got to decide whether to punish or pardon, you can't do both. And God says, I am just and I am merciful and therefore I will do both. How, how could he? How could he? You can't satisfy justice and mercy at the same time. You must always do one at the expense of the other in human affairs. There is only one situation in which you can do both, only one, and that is where an innocent person voluntarily accepts the punishment that was due to the guilty. And then, and in that circumstance only, can justice and mercy be satisfied. A woman was in a court in England, I believe it was up in Hull, a few years back, and she was told that she'd committed a serious crime. It was a case of a fine of 25 pounds or three months in prison. And she pleaded with the judge, her husband had left her, she had the children, she said, I, I can't afford it, I haven't the money, but you mustn't send me to prison, please have mercy. And the judge said, no, you've broken the law, I can't show mercy justice must be done and he passed sentence and then he took out of his pocket a checkbook and he wrote a check for 25 pass that down to her see what was happening the judge was taking the penalty and so justice was done but the guilty party walked out of court free that's how God solved the problem too and one can see the conversation in heaven one can almost hear it God saying son would you pay the penalty? I have got to do it. Justice much must be done. I have got to punish them for their sins and the punishment must be death. They don't deserve to live, but son, would you go? And we know what Jesus said, lo, I come to do your will. And at the cross, justice, divine justice has been satisfied and the supreme penalty has been paid. And you could walk out of this church tonight with every sin forgiven, free, provided you'll accept it. And the final thing, we've almost got there, haven't we? I've been saying this all along, but in relation to the sinner, to you, to me, the cross is a substitution. I mean by that that Christ was substituted for you. And when you look at the cross, you know that you should be right there. They should have been crucifying you, not him. He is your substitute. The Jewish nation every year, you can read about it in Leviticus 16, every year the Jewish nation took a goat, the scapegoat, Hazalel, 
and they put their hands on its head and one after the other they confessed their sins. They loaded that poor goat with their sins and then they kicked it out of Jerusalem and sent it into the wilderness to die, to take their sins away, the scapegoat for the nation. They did it every single year. There's another scapegoat, somebody who in my place, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a savior. My substitute took my place. And I just want to tell you two things in closing. First of all, you will become a Christian the moment you believe that Jesus died for you. And that moment, your sins are forgiven. And you've got a place in heaven. And for the sake of the blood of Jesus, you're clean in God's sight and accepted. And you can go free. But that's not the end of the cross. If that were, then all you would need to do would be to come to the cross and accept it. And that's it. You can forget it then. You're free. No. Shall I tell you the secret of living the Christian life? It is to go to that same cross every day and not just say he died for me, but to say something else. And I'm speaking to Christians now to say this. I died with him. I died with him. He wants to be your substitute, not just in death, but in life. So that the life you live is no longer you, but Christ living in you. So that you die on that cross too, and his life takes place, the place of yours. And that's the meaning of the cross. That's why we preach Christ crucified. That's why we glory in an instrument of execution. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus.